Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Bria Grant, an actor, writer, director, and producer who's been having a pretty great year, all things considered. She wrote and starred in Lucky, a very unsettling satire about a woman trying to understand why she's being stalked by the same unknown assailant night after night. And she wrote and directed 12-Hour Shift, which stars Angela Bettis as a hospital nurse having a very long night doing some very unsavory things. Bria also has a tiny role in Happily from writer-director Ben David Krabinski, friend of the show. And she co-stars in The Stylus, a psychological thriller from director Jill Jevorgesian, which just arrived on Arrow. Bria picked Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Joe Dante's 1990 sequel to his 1984 horror comedy, which picks up six years after the scaly green monsters rampage through Kingston Falls. Billy and Kate, still played by Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates, are adults now, relocated to New York City and working for a Manhattan tycoon named Daniel Clamp. But when Gizmo comes back into their lives and falls into the hands of Clamp's top geneticist, it's only a matter of time before the Gremlins run wild again. And this time, it's weird. If you've seen Gremlins 2, you know what I mean. This is someone else's movie. You know, I I was talking to my fiance about this, about Gremlins versus Gremlins 2. Because <laughs> we joke a lot about Gremlins in our house. And Gremlins 2 had such a bigger impact on me, even though it's a sequel. And I think it's in part due to my age. Um, I was probably more aware of Gremlins 2. I was, you know, three years old or something when the first Gremlins came out. Yeah. Um, but also it's just a wild movie. It is a completely insane movie that really stuck with me as a kid. And, um, and then I'm, I mean, I can't talk about it without referring to the key and peel sketch that really, I feel like brought it back into like the zeitgeist sure, yeah. of comedy and horror. Um, uh, people wanting to talk about those two things at the same time. Um, and I just thought that sketch was also really funny, but the movie itself <laughs> is just, I love a feel good movie. And, there was just this era, you know, in the 80s and 90s where um, there were so many family-friendly genre movies. And, you know, it's this one, it's Neverending Story, it's Labyrinth, um, uh, and all of these kind of movies that I loved growing up because they were so fantastical, but uh, also had, they, they were kid-appropriate. Kids could watch them. And I think that was, you know, I, I loved them. And that and Girl is True definitely falls into that category. It's such a unique, even among sequels and even among genre sequels, it is such an odd film, right? It's, I was trying to figure it out. I, I did an episode on the first film with uh, with Ben Blacker maybe six months ago. Oh, cool. Uh, released, released it around Christmas, but um, yeah, we, we sat on it for a while. But uh, it's it's one of those movies, the, the sequel was so amazingly polarizing uh, because people either loved it because it continued to do the thing that Gremlins did, which is just mock itself, make fun of structure, make fun of the characters, refuse to take itself fully seriously, or they hated it for the same reason, which I found absolutely fascinating. Right, right. And I was reading a little bit about it and hadn't thought that much about it, you know, as far as a sequel goes, but I guess what they were trying to do was make the anti-sequel. You know, they wanted to make something that was so bonkers that it was like, it, it almost, it, it would end the idea of the sequel, which I feel like it almost does because it is a completely insane premise. <laughs> and everything that happens is completely insane. And I love a movie that, you know, will 
will just make huge, broad choices. I also love a movie where they have a musical sequence in the middle and break out and do a meta thing with Hulk Hogan. Like, there's so <laughs> many crazy things about this movie. Yeah, the Hulk Hogan one. And the Hulk Hogan sequence, I, I don't know if you ever saw the, the VHS, if you're young enough, they replaced it, right? There's a separate right. sequence with that, which was completely disorienting when I saw it. It, I mean, even I rewatched it last night and the, the whole thing is disorienting to have you have it suddenly take you out of the movie. I mean, what a strange choice. But I, I kind of just appreciate that the they were like, well, shoot your shot, man. Like make if you're going to make a, we- a weird sequel to a, a movie that already is sort of doesn't even like the rules are confusing, you know, the rules of the gremlins are it. They don't it doesn't totally make sense. The gremlins don't totally make sense. Uh, so may as well just like make a, a wild movie that's a fun ride. Yeah. And to to that end, you have like basically the whole history of Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers and Hammer Horror and, and everything occupying the same space, fighting for dominance in much the same way the individual gremlins are fighting. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I am trying to get my head around how to talk about this film, but it is basically <laughs> its own Tasmanian devil. It really is. Well, when I'm watching it, rewatching it last night, because I, I watched it maybe a year or two ago. It was on Hulu or something. And I was like, oh, girl, I haven't seen that one in a minute. And um, I had forgotten. And then I revisited it. And I had forgotten, like, it has these huge themes, right? It has themes of, like, gentrification is, like, yeah. one of the major reasons uh, that, you know, all this comes to play and then also just sort of like uncontrolled capitalism uh like this like this trumpian sort of guy uh at its center um is is part of the problem as well and then like all and then sort of an almost an anti-technology sort of uh um space but it has these big themes that weren't really in the first one like they definitely weren't tackling capitalism like (laughs) capitalism run amok whereas in this one it's like one of the problems is that they have this animal testing facility and this and all these things within this one giant tower which is you know i i just this horrible evil place um that is basically obviously supposed to be trump trump tower yeah the idea that you know trump and elon musk are somehow the same person in this world right and (laughs) yeah pretty pretty much who turns out to be like not the worst person at the end of the movie. Like there are worse people working under him, but uh, yeah, he's he <laughs> a bad guy. It's yeah. And, and John Glover is so charming that it's kind of okay. Right. Like you get the feeling that he is the person that you want a Trump to be, you know, like sort of disconnected, just happy to put his name on stuff and enthusiastic about building things as opposed to, you know, like a malevolent narcissistic force of destruction. But right. Yeah. Well, well, uh, well put. That's me. Um, <laughs> I'm just reading it. I'm reading it in. But yeah, I, you you said the first one's not really about capitalism, and it's it doesn't have it as its at its forefront. It does have the it's a wonderful life version of capitalism, right? Like Mrs. Deagle and the loans, and and her control over Kingston Falls. But this film transplants the entire narrative of the first movie, really. I mean, that's the point of it, it, restaging it beat for beat into the big city, into a world that none of the characters we've met before are prepared for fully. And like, it's a smart way of putting Billy and Kate off balance again and making them and challenging them and making them the, the kids in the in a world where they're all much older. Yeah, for sure. 
And I think like there's definitely, I mean, just to speak to the capitalist part of it, I think there is, there's such a, uh, like, you know, they're worried about, well, will the people sue them? Not will the people die? You know, like there's big concerns are very different. And also you have this like very evil place where they're literally firing people for taking too long of breaks. I mean, it is like a very, you know, late stage capitalist issue that's happening. It's happening here, but definitely. Yeah. You're able, you're right. And that's, I mean, this is the problem with sequels, right? It's hard to like take these characters who've already experienced something and then make it happen to them once again, which is maybe why we end up with different characters as our leads in a lot of sequels. Yeah. I mean, horror movies, I I never forgot something Anthony Perkins said about Psycho 3. So like, as long as there is the possibility of a sequel, the studio is going to want one. So he got on board of Psycho 3 because it gave him the chance to direct as well, star. But his thing was, what was it? It's like, you know, oh, the, the, the cursed thing killed everyone in the house, but the dog survived. The dog could go to another family. We'll follow the dog. Right. 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 And it's kind of the problem with the the final girl in general, right? Cause she, she can survive. So you can always do another, you know, whatever movie. Um, although my theory is that she would be so traumatized that like she would immediately give up. She's not fighting to the end again. Oh. I, I, I don't know if I would be. <laughs> that's an interpretation I haven't thought of before. Just surrendering. Oof. That's, there's a meta film in there somewhere, but I don't know that I want to watch a, just a straight up version of it. It, there's a darkness for sure about the, uh, I think the final girl is an unexplored, very dark, traumatic uh, character that that we kind of just torture over and over again instead of uh, allowing her to sometimes maybe give up. Yeah. Woof. Gizmo is kind of a final I'm- Gizmo is the final girl, kind of. I mean, in fact, Gizmo even has a, a, a training sequence in this movie, which yeah. is a little bit of a final girl I mean, it's also maybe, you know, uh, 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 an action movie thing, but um, but it is a little bit of a final girl thing, too, where you're almost like prepping the house for like the 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 bad guy to come along at the last minute and like, you know, get him home alone style. But instead, he's like literally lifting weights and stuff in this movie. Yeah, the Rambo stuff is the little bandana, too. It's it felt to me like. Joe Dante was very, very specifically saying that he doesn't think Sylvester Stallone is doing all that much to be ready for Rambo. You know, like this, this is all it takes. The little guy can do it too. Oh, wow. You think he was calling out, you think he was calling out Stallone? That was like his goal? Maybe lovingly, but I do think there's like, there's a definite specificity to the, to the bandana. For sure. For, for <laughs> but it sure. Is, it is adorable. Like it's oh, yeah. on Gizmo. Well, it's the one thing I, I mean, watching this movie, I mean, they did a great job of creating Gizmo, obviously, but also they just even the music and everything, you really do relate to Gizmo. Like you do feel for Gizmo when Gizmo's getting like, you know, taken away and can't get to them on time and and all the parts where they're torturing Gizmo. And I remember as a kid that really bothering me when they were torturing Gizmo. I really hated it um, because I loved Gizmo so much. But yeah, I think they do such a good job in making Gizmo uh, an anthropomorphizing Gizmo. I can't, can you anthropomorphize something that doesn't exist? I'm not sure. <laughs> he's, he's pretty anthropomorphic. I mean, for for a creature, he's very human. I think that's sure. fair. Um, and yeah, um, uh, Ben Blacker and I talked about this in the in our conversation about the first Gremlins. Is that there is something truly awful about watching Gizmo suffer, even though you know he's not real, and even though. He's probably suffering because the effects guys hate the puppet so much at that point in the shoot that they just want to take their frustrations out on it. That's a good theory. I mean, 
I care far more about gizmo suffering than the humans. Like I'm not <laughs> concerned about the humans, uh, you, anyone who seems in danger, but when gizmo is in danger, I do not like it. It makes me very sad. No, I get that. Well, it's like watching a dog in danger in a movie. You, you know, on some level or a child actor, like a baby, you, on some level, you know that the humans are all consenting to this and they're fine with it, but the pets and the kids, they might not know how fake this is. Sure. But I always worry. Even have a, it's not real. He's not real. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but, I don't we, know. but we project on Gizmo because because of that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Sweet. I find that I definitely do. And this was that era in which I wish, like, there were like the, the creatures like Gizmo, um, and also uh, in Neverending Story, there was the Luck Dragon, like things that I was like as a kid, I was like, but what if those did exist? I would really want one. And I think that was like such a important part of it is that I just felt close to that thing because it was something I wanted. I wanted to own. I wanted to be friends with. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, there, there is so much about the appeal of any fantasy movie, right? The idea, especially with kid heroes, that you could be part of it, that you could participate in it. Yeah. And and every single person who saw Gremlins, I'm sure, came away thinking they would be better at handling all those rules than Billy and his family, who are kind of terrible. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Although I, I, in rewatching it last night, um, spoiler for the ending, anyone who hasn't seen, you know, 30 year old movie. Um, but I didn't, I was like, oh, the ending is so not something I would have thought of. <laughs> like if given in the situation or maybe even as a writer, but they really needed that electricity gremlin in order to solve that problem. Yeah, that's true. Which is the weirdest one of all. And I mean, obviously they you they that was like a writing device in order to fix that. But I would never I I don't know if given if been if I had been in the tower, if I would have thought to kill kill them all that way. It is yeah, actually, it is one of those things where it only works based on the writers figuring it out in the moment, right? Like I, I don't think they teed it up. I, I can't imagine that was part of it. But it's a good solution. It's very efficient. Right. And it, I mean, I guess it could have been, you know, yeah, maybe they also wrote the vegetable gremlin as a way to like kill, kill everybody at the end, but it was the electricity one that worked better. Yeah. But I think I, I do feel like maybe that was, it was written in there as a way, as a device in order to, you know, melt all the gremlins. At the yeah. End. How do we end this? Oh, I don't know. One of them could be, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it's not like the Tony Randall gremlin is going to, sorry, the brain gremlin is going to talk them down. Right. Sure. Sorry. He His is my favorite. Gremlin. I kept thinking, I kept calling him Brainy Gremlin in my head, but Brain Gremlin's pretty Brainy cool. Gremlin is good too. I think it is Brain Gremlin. I think the names are really basic in the credits, but he is my favorite character. He always has been. Um, there is seriously not a week that goes by, especially this year, where I don't quote canned food and shotguns on some <laughs> level. That is like the, that is such a wonderful in-context line, both for a Gremlins movie and for a movie made, released in 1990. You know, like I'm advising all of my clients to invest their money in canned foods and shotguns. <laughs> Still works. Still works. And, you know, he's right. That's why he's the brainy one. <laughs> Smart one. <laughs> yeah. And, and it is what you said, too, about late capitalism. That In 1990, that movie predicted way too much stuff accurately. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, there's also that late 80s era where I feel like we were thinking a lot about, like, money, cocaine, and... <laughs> the building blocks of life. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. Money, cocaine, and capitalism, the building blocks of life. Um, so I think that like we were tackling that, especially like in a lot of genre things. And maybe there was part of like Joe Dante or something. It was like, this is a money grab. I'm going to tackle capitalism. I mean, maybe that's, you know, part part of the fun of making the movie. But yeah. I think, I I think mean, so. Yeah. I mean, certainly taking, you know, taking Warner's money to make a movie about why corporations are the devil. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But capitalism, I mean, is way out of control now, but definitely we were seeing the early stages of that at that moment. I mean, Oh yeah, the economy was doing great, but it, like in a way that seemed it was very clear it wasn't going to do so great in a couple of years. Yeah, the Reagan Revolution was already over, and the meltdown was coming. I mean, and we will absolutely circle back around to twelve-hour shift because I think there's a real through line here. <laughs> it's basically trying to make gremlins, but with nurses. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, I would watch that. Okay. Uh, but the idea too that as soon as Gizmo is revealed in any universe, in the in like small town, in a big city, the first thing people want to do is sell him or, or merchandise him, monetize him. That feels like a commentary on the doll culture of the time as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Poor Gizmo. I mean, they want to sell him or experiment on him, which I don't think is wrong. I think that is exactly what would have happened. Like if we found a Gizmo, if we found some a Gizmo-like creature any sort. Yeah, we're we're all humans are horrible. We would definitely sell him to the highest bidder who would then, you know, try to figure out how to make another one to sell more, which means they would probably, you know, do a bunch of experiments on him. That that is I mean, look, I've been a vegetarian for many years. I think this this is an animal rights issue and I think that this and I'm on board for what they're preaching. <laughs> You're not wrong. It, I mean in, in any of that. It is animal an animal rights issue, but it's also a morality thing and the fact that we don't have any as a species. <laughs> yeah, which this movie really shows. I mean, the only characters with any sort of morality are our main characters, really. I I was laughing to myself about the um oh the Marla character the the lady boss oh Haviland Morris who's <laughs> yeah. who's so much fun so good uh I'd watch that spinoff in a hot heartbeat like whatever her life is that led to this moment where she's walking around smoking with this accent and then hitting on anything that moves all the women in this movie are horny it's just her <laughs> The horny lady gremlin, uh, and that's pretty much it. Um, <laughs> but I just love the idea of this, like, 90s, late 80s, 90s, like, business lady. And, like, to get ahead, you have to be, like, hard and tough. And you smoke cigarettes. And you got strong opinions. And, you know, and, and you're not scared of your sexuality. Like, it's, like, such a weird time. Um, and we were supposed to buy her, which is very funny. Yeah. she's. I didn't see her as, I mean, she's adversarial. But I didn't, certainly she's not the villain. Of the piece. She's not a villain, but I think she's villainous. I think, I mean, she's trying to break them up as a couple. She doesn't care that he has a girlfriend. And then she's just basically doing anything she can to get ahead. I mean, she gets a nice ending, which is good. Um, but I, I don't I don't know if she's a, you know, a character we're really rooting for. Do you think she is? No, I mean, no. I mean, certainly within her world, like she thinks she is. But um, sure. yes. the movie, yeah. No, Why the her movie... spinoff would be great. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be, yeah, of course. Exactly. Yeah. She's the Judge Reinhold for this movie. She's the one who's there to sort of be a dick, but not actually harm anyone. Because you know, that's, that's true. And you don't get the lady dick in a lot of movies. It's always it's always uh, some dude, you know, with a preppy, you know, collared shirt or something. Instead, we have like a lady in a 
it's not even a pantsuit. It's like a long, it's like a skirt, like yeah, a long eighties skirt. It's a shoulder pad warrior. I don't know how to describe it. So many shoulder pads in this movie. Actually. <laughs> yeah. How much fashion happening? <laughs> yeah, we we have in some ways evolved a little bit, but <laughs> that's just because everybody's wearing sweats and pajamas these days. I ugh, yeah, I I hate. I really am not looking forward to a time in which we have to go back and wear pants, real pants. Yeah, skirts. Ugh, gross. I get dressed every day just because that way I'm not devolving into the writer stereotype, uh, which I am anyway. Um, I mean, I've worked from home my entire life. I'm built for this, but yeah, no, I, you know, it, it feels like if I, if I let that one thing go out the whole thing, it's not like I'm wearing a suit or anything, but if I don't put pants on in the morning, I'm the whole world is going to end. My, my world will slide straight to chaos. Yeah. You know, I same. I mean, most of my work I do from home anyway, um, so it wasn't that different, but I have given a little bit up. I'm wearing jeans today, but I have given up a little bit. And I did order a lot more sweatpants online recently because I just was like, well, this is where I'm at for a long time. I may as well be comfortable. And I've gained enough weight during all this. I feel like I should be wearing sweatpants because my pants are kind of not fitting so great. That's fair. I I'm, currently it's so cold here that I'm actually wearing like heat tech insulated jeans from Uniqlo, which feel like pajamas. So I feel like I'm winning, even though I look like I'm dressed. I will check that out. They're all artificial fibers, which brings us back to Gremlins, too. It's a film that celebrates that sort of perversity, though. The idea that if you are the hero of your own story, you can do whatever you want. And then in the corner, there's Billy and Kate, who are trying so hard to preserve their small town values to the point where they seem like absolute hicks. Um, But it's charming. I think the... the, the biggest problem I have with the first movie is that you can't tell how old they're supposed to be. Like, did they go to college and come home? Are they just out of high school? Are they still in high school? It's really vague. And here, it's six years later, they acknowledge the time has passed and they're allowed to be adults. Yeah. You know, I recently read the script for the first one and it, the, the, the original script, or there is a script floating around. It's very different than the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think in the script, it was clear they were in high school. Don't quote me on that. But um Well, it would make sense. I mean, like yeah. Billy's first impulse is to go see his high school science teacher. Like there's a lot of stuff that seems to suggest they're younger than they seem to be. Right. And in this, it's more of like the they're trying to make it. They can't get married yet because he doesn't have the money, which I love that is like a weird, like, why? Why this is I think that's supposed to make us love them more that they can't get married until he gets this promotion or whatever, which is such a, like, that's not an eighties way of thinking. That's like a 1950s way of thinking. Yeah. Um, but that's where they came from, right? Like in the, in Kingston falls, it's still kind of 1952 and you get the feeling that they're, they themselves haven't come that much further, which would make me assume New York will eat them any day now. Sure. Yeah. It's wild that they even moved to New York. I mean, I don't even know. I think it's a bad move for them in general. They should not have gone to New York. It's too scary. People are wearing crazy shoulder pads and weird hats. And there's literal scientists trying to like create, you know, I don't know what, like in the same building. This is, it's a crazy world, too crazy of a world for them. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about Christopher Lee and, and the, the joy he brings to that role. Uh, sending up his entire career as a hammer heavy, just goofing around with it. He was, you know, he was this massive imposing figure um, of horror films and also just in general, apparently, I think he was 6'4 or something. He was very tall. And Dante clearly just loves him because he lights him for to take advantage of his jawline and his forehead and all the shadows around him to the point where I think he ends up in that big um, impressionist, like, 
German expressionist spider's web thing. And the movie is just saying, isn't this great? Look who he is. How much fun are you having? And I'm wondering how that played for kids, like for a younger audience. Cause I knew I was 22 when I saw the movie, I knew who he was. Mm. No, I, w- I mean, I, I mean, I know who he is now, right. but as a kid that would not have, well, so I think that, that what is so great in some ways about these movies for kids and, and all these kind of darker genre movies is that it's very clear delineation of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Right. And so I think for me that like the eighties bad guy is so clear. Like it's so clear. He's like, he's mean, he experiments on animals or he bosses around his subordinates or he's mean to the, to the workers or whatever. And like in the same way that Disney movies almost do this, right. Where we're like, Oh, the hunter is bad, not Bambi. And like, it's just very clear black and white who we're supposed to like and who we're not supposed to like. And these movies did a similar Thing. And I think that's just the way I interpreted those movies. Like 80s bad guys have a look. Yeah. They all have the same hair. Like, <laughs> like they all went to the same barber. Uh, and it's the same clo- clothes for the most part. I mean, so exceptions in this movie, obviously. But, you know, usually, yeah, they have a popped collar. Or they have uh, they're picking on our hero in some way, shape or form. I, the, the, the whose side you're supposed to be on was very clear. Um and I think there's like comfort to that as a kid, right? Yeah. And this is absolutely made for children to enjoy as much as adults. Like I think the first film walks a really interesting line between genuine horror and family adventure, right? That that that's why they invented the PG-13 rating. That and, and Temple of Doom were the two films that freaked everybody out so much they needed to come up with a new classification. But it's just the escalation of intensity that started with things like Jaws or Star Wars or Close Encounters where, I mean, those can be, well, maybe not Star Wars so much, but Close Encounters and Jaws are definitely horror adjacent, especially Mm -hmm. in the first hour of Close Encounters. And it just kept going. And so with this one, it feels very much to me like Dante is aware of it and pulling back. Like even the gore is comical. There's no sense of real threat. And because there's already been a Gremlins movie, the audience is just assuming, you know, nobody's really going to get hurt. Only the bad people ultimately will be punished and Gizmo will be fine because he's the perfect little doll man and no one wants anything bad to happen to him. But to the, you know, the gremlins can do as much damage to each other as they want. And they always do. We will put them in a paper shredder and not, and not have, and have no regrets. <laughs> uh, sorry, my, there's a, there's an ice cream truck that comes around my house. What's right that with that? Yeah, it's going to go for a long time. Just Fine. <laughs> I like the idea that nature is returning. I, every day, every day, sometime between now and 5 p.m. It comes and sits outside my house. Um, Barely hear it. Don't worry about it. Okay, good. All right. Um, it's. I feel like that the movie, in some ways, it's rebellious, not in its gore or in its horror. It's rebellious in like its structure and its choices, right? It's it's the It's the literally uh putting uh what is oh malton in it and putting and then and right. doing the thing where you cut to the theater and doing things where it's such winks to the audience that i feel like that was for all of us like genre filmmakers we're always trying to like do something a little rebellious and a little like ah oh, look at me i'm 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 bucking the system or something and i feel like that was the way they were doing it instead of you know and 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 poking fun 
too. The whole sequence in the it's in the yogurt shop where they're like, "Is this natural?" Is and I'm like, "Oh God!" We're like, "This is current. This is a current joke that they're making." Um, is is like we're, we, they're just making fun of people we know. They're making fun of Los Angelinos or New Yorkers, and uh, that's sort of the fun I feel like in the movie. And then all the stuff that kids can relate to, like, you know, exploding a gremlin somehow. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's just as satisfying for the parents to get the social satire in and then for the kids to just enjoy the the chaos. Although I have to admit, as a grown ass man, the the chaos is really fun. I I can lose myself in that. Absolutely. The moment that vegetable gremlin pops out of a, you know, a salad bar, I'm, I'm in, I'm excited. Uh, That's very funny to me still to this day makes me giggle. I giggled, I laughed out loud a couple of times watching it. And I think that this is why I I wanted to pick this movie is because I don't feel like I see as many of these movies anymore like this, because the equivalent almost is like a Marvel movie or something, right? Where you can bring kids, you can bring adults, everyone likes it, but there's no satire in them for the most part. And there's no tongue in cheek and there's very few winks to the audience. And there's very few like elevation of, like there is something intelligent about this movie in some ways. I mean, yes, is there like a gargoyle (laughs) gremlin? Yes. You know, is there a lady gremlin with giant lips? That's ridiculous, totally silly. But there's also stuff that I'm like, oh yeah, they're taking out like taking Trump down a notch. He's taking capitalism down a notch. And I, I think I miss some of that, like some of the intelligent, like underlying choices in some in some modern day movies. Yeah, you don't see it very often. Um, for, the family, for the family movies, for the movies that are like both, that they're kind of for everyone. I mean, I think Pixar is maybe doing some of that, but that those they aren't horror. Yeah, no, it's emotional subtext rather than like political or social subtext. When when Pixar does something like Inside Out is absolutely uh, a movie about depression and the importance of having. Um, Varied experiences. I'm trying to figure out a way to say that that doesn't sound like I'm somehow diminishing mental health issues, but but it's about understanding that those issues are part of who we become. Uh, or finding Dory, where you realize, oh, somebody at Pixar has a kid with special needs, and this is what that is about. It's about the challenges the parents face, because that's the perspective they have. But the, like I'm trying to think of a recent, there's a film called Vampires versus the Bronx that hit Netflix last year. Sarah Gadden's in it, and... Uh, it's about gentrification and vampires. It's basically the same thing as Fright Night. Someone really attractive moves in and takes over, but they're a vampire. And it's it's a pretty clever way through that. And I was surprised, again, like I don't think I'd seen a movie that dealt with both of those issues, both the horror issue and the gentrification issue in, in as fluid and, and fun a way since Attack the Block. And that's maybe, what, 2011? Yeah, yeah, which is a great, a great oh, yeah. movie. Um. But again, not necessarily one you would like take kids to. And that's like the, like, I think finding like these dark family movies, I think I, I miss them in a way. Yeah. I think they've disappeared. I mean, I think they're being made in Europe still where there's Mm -hmm. a market, but America just, you know, North America has been eaten by the megaplex experience of, you know, see something in IMAX and 3D to justify the ticket price. Otherwise, why even bother? But I would pay so much for a ticket price right now. Like, give give me, I would pay, <laughs> in a quarantine situation, would pay so much to go to the movies right now. Oh, yeah. It's nothing, I want nothing more. I teased 12-hour shift uh, as a corollary to 
uh, <laughs> to Gremlins 2, which sounds weird coming out of my mouth. But they, as, you're not wrong. Like, it is a Gremlins movie with nurses. It is about the way people are pitted against each other. And then they just start doing it for fun, I think, or perversity anyway, which is kind of a Gremlinsy thing to do. A, a little bit. And um, not only that, but if you get them wet and then they turn into these horrible people and you can't feed them after midnight. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think I lean towards fun. I, that's me as a person, but also me and my writing. I mean, I, I have some dark stuff that I've written, but, uh, this one, especially like, I think really tapped into my, uh, my playfulness in the dark space. I like playing around in things that are dark and that, and I think gremlins is one of those. It, it is a dark, these are horrible little monster creatures and they're coming <laughs> and you know, they're going to try to marry you. If they're, if you're a hot dude, <laughs> and they're the lady gremlin, like all of they're just, they're very horrifying. And I think that part of me just likes playing in that space. So I'll take it. I'll take a, grim, a gremlins 12 hour shift uh, <laughs> comparison. The one thing that's missing is the Lincoln birthday monologue. I, I was trying to figure out if there's something in 12 hour shift that's like that, but there really isn't. And there shouldn't be really, because when it shows up in gremlins two, again, half the audience was totally into it. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the movie and everybody else is the other half is just like shooting daggers at the screen with their eyes. <laughs> I wish I could have seen gremlins two in a theater when I was more aware. I was, I, I don't think, I don't know if I saw it in a theater. I'm not sure. Maybe I did but I would have been young. So it's like hard to remember. It's it's more of something I watched on television. Yeah. It still plays though. I got to say watching it again. It's just like, the, I don't think we ever gave Phoebe Cates enough credit for either of the speeches. Like in the first one, she sells it. Well, I was going to say in, in anything she does, she's so great. I like, we can't give her enough credit as an actress in general. She's been in some of like the most, you know, uh, important coming of age movies. I feel like for me and I don't, I, I often don't think about her, you know, as an actress these days. And um, like, I, I'm now watching, rewatching that. I was like, Phoebe Cates, like, let's, 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 let's call her up. Let's put her in something. Like, she seems like she's something, someone who would be, be very cool. I will say one, a correlation between these two movies, this movie and 12 hour shift, both have, um both have musical numbers in the middle, which I love. So I feel like that is a, there's a New York, New York and 12 hour shift has um, a bunch of nurses breaking into song into uh, a religious, <laughs> a religious song in the middle of killing people. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. It does. T- it's if nothing else, it's a statement of intent, right. From the filmmaker. It's the, <laughs> it, the elasticity and the, and the sense of the sense of play. Um, I saw something. Oh, uh Barb and star go to Vista Del Mar has a musical number. I think it has two. I, I just watched it as well. Um, well, there's like one and a half, right? Because there's the, the welcome to the hotel thing. But but Edgar's Prayer, which just, again, seeing it in here, jaw-dropping and on point. Like, it does it. It goes for it. And it it plays with it, with its credibility and, and everything else. And the lyrics are just off enough that you suddenly, oh, of course, Will Ferrell produced this. Like, of course, he would respond to this pitch. <laughs> Yeah, and I I wonder. I mean, I assume that was that was in the script uh, uh, when it when it was made, and I'm assuming that's why I don't know that actor's name. But when I'm one of the reasons, it's such a crazy role for him. Oh, Jamie Dornan. Yes, of, such a crazy of, role for him. I'm like, of course, this guy signed on to do this this completely wild, bizarre, against type role for him. But yeah, I think that sense of play, and I think, I mean, one of the things I 
love about movies and books and all sorts of media, but particularly movies is, um, uh, is an escape from my reality, which is what I really want at this moment during quarantine. I really, which is why I think Barb and star coming out was so great. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to rent that. Like that seems like so silly and fun and uh, escaping from my immediate surroundings of this living room that I've been in for the past year. Um, and, but, but I'm already, I mean, before all of this, I was drawn to that kind of media. That's kind of what, the kind of movies I want to watch is the kind of movies I want to make is these ones that sort of take our reality and run, run with it. Even though dealing with like cool issues and talking about stuff that's relatable, but like put, put that shit in space too. Like, I mean, like, you know, or make it be a bunch of gremlins, like make it be about this relationship or, or relying on yourself or whatever the themes are or anti-capitalism, but also make there be gremlins there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, where would you? This this is actually a perfect setup for that question. Where would you take Gremlins three? Because Ben had some ideas, and I'm curious to see what you're thinking. Yes, Ben and I need to, you know, come together on this because maybe Ben and I can <laughs> pitch this. I mean, Gremlins in space—that's always a great place to go. Uh, you know, when you run out of sequel ideas, you throw it into space just to see what happens. And I love a good sci-fi book um, or a movie. Um, where would I take? Gremlins too. Yeah, you have to save space for the fourth movie. That's the rule. Mm. Leprechauns, yeah, Hellraisers, it's always the fourth one. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I'm not totally sure. I, I feel like we've done it. The thing about this sequel is it, it is, it's the cabin in the woods of sequels, right? It's the, it, it is the, you've ended what sequels are with this sequel. Yeah. We did everything. If you were like wondering if we're going to make a spider gremlin, like it's done, you know, like all of the gremlins, not only did they come back and they caused chaos, they all got their own individual personalities and storylines. And the only thing I'd really like to see is maybe some of them come back and see what their, what that spinoff is for that vegetable gremlin or something. I don't know. Yeah. Like a one division thing where we just get different episodes, different textures, different genres. I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Or follow, follow Marla, you know, like what a, what a, <laughs> like an Ally McBeal show with Marla. Oh, uh, would watch it in a minute in a yeah. heartbeat. Yeah. I'm down for that. Uh, we've kind of touched on it. Uh, the, the final question on the podcast is always, is there anything of this film that you've used or, or lifted or stolen outright? And the, the mania is there and the, the musical number, but is there something else? Have you tipped a hat in a specific way? Um, I'm trying to think the 12 hour shift. I think that's pretty much it. Um, I also wrote this film called lucky that is, um, uh, coming out and, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any sort of correlation there. It's not really except that it's also a satire. Um, I mean, I think I am drawn. I, this is much bigger, but I think I am personally very drawn to like taking a genre that's already been really established, something like, you know, the Gremlins, like Gremlins, and then just really turning it on its head, which this sequel really did. And something I wanted to do with Lucky was take the slasher idea and kind of make it a little meta and, and make, and, and say like, we're talking about violence against women really in these slasher movies, but like, what if we really talked about it? Like, what if we actually like pushed that and, and what does it look, what would it look like to be these women? Um, and, and, and kind of make, and, and make a bigger statement about, you know, obviously, uh, women 
violence against women, like in our culture. Um, and so I think like something, I <laughs> very strange comparison, but I think both of those movies are in some ways satires of the movies we've already seen, or at the very least um, taking a uh, taking that idea and and shooting it to the moon. Oh, they're definitely in conversation with them. Yeah. You've not full on. I mean, they are full on satire. Yeah, it it is. Sorry. It's just like, it didn't, I guess 12 hour shift didn't strike me as a satire until about 25 minutes in when it's just like the penny drops and you're like, Oh, I got it. (laughs) And I I love that. It's a, it's a comedy for sure. I, I call it a workplace comedy when people ask me what genre it is. Sure. Um, or a nurse exploitation movie, which my brother's a nurse, and that's what he started calling it, and I, 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 I agree with that. Um, but Lucky, I do think is a satire for sure. I think it's straight away a satire. Um, when people watch it, I think they tend to agree. My thanks to Bria Grant, whose latest films, Lucky and Twelve Hour Shift, are now available to stream and very much worth checking out. Lucky is on Shutter, and Twelve Hour Shift is now streaming on Hulu in the U.S. and on VOD platforms in the U.S. and Canada. The Stylist is also streaming on Arrow's platform. Thanks also, again, to Kayla Heyer. She knows what she did. Bria's not on Twitter, but you can keep an eye on Lucky through its production company, Ilium Pictures, all one word, and you can find Gremlins 2 on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming on Crave and Amazon in Canada if you have a Star subscription. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and writing the weekly Now Streaming newsletter. I even mentioned Lucky in there a couple weeks back. You can subscribe to that at NowToronto.substack.com, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.